Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you this morning, Father, we are reminded of your grandeur, your, your majesty, Lord, just how wonderful you are for all the grace that you've shown us and all the good things you've given us. And Father, we thank you for that. As we look now into your word, I pray that you would open it up for us, that, Father, we might be drawn to you, that we might become more like you. So, Lord, give us this opportunity to hear your voice and to make changes in our own life as we try to pattern our lives after you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, folks, why don't you have a seat? My uh, voice is recovering, so bear with me here. I may have to cough a few times, so um, just I nothing else to say about it. It just is what it is. Um, if you are visiting, please hang around today. We are having a fundraiser for the youth to go to youth camp. Uh, it's a great potato meal with all the trimmings, so, uh, baked potatoes. So please stick around for that and uh, maybe just get to know us a little better. We'd appreciate that. We come today to the last sermon in the book of Judges. Those of you that have been here, we've been going through a study in the book of Judges. And we come to a passage of Scripture today that we're going to look at. It's one of the most bizarre passages of Scripture that I can think of in the Bible. And we are going to look at that because a lot of people jump right over it and don't talk about it. I've only ever heard it preached one time in my life. And you're going to see, because there's not a lot there to talk about at first glance, because you're kind of left asking yourself and wondering, why is it even there? What is the point of it? Why was it recorded? Why did God inspire um, Samuel to write this? Why was it included in the scripture? So we're going to look at that. And the answer to the question is quite simple, and I think it will become apparent to you as we look at it. And that is that God wanted to show just how bad it was in the land of Israel during this time. Just how wicked Israel had become during this 400-year uh, period of the judges. And you have already seen, and we're going to see again today, several times in the book of Judges it is stated that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right or what they saw fit in their own eyes. That was the problem. Israel didn't have a king at that time. There was nobody to provide law and order. There was nobody to provide some sort of moral stability. Um, their kingdom was divided. Everybody was just doing whatever they wanted to. It really wasn't a kingdom. And worship was a shambles. Morality was a disgrace. They were physically and spiritually weak. And there was no peace. It was just turmoil in the land because everybody just did what they wanted to do. Now, Samuel is writing this because Samuel, if you recall, <coughs> is the, um, the prophet that, is, that comes, uh, is born right during the transition from the period of the judges to the monarchy when David becomes the king and Solomon and so forth. So he's writing from the vantage point of being in the monarchy. It has already started. Saul would have been crowned king, first of all. Didn't work out well, but later on, David becomes the king, and that's when um, the nation of Israel really takes off. They become a force to be reckoned with in the world. They become a land of uh, somewhat moral stability. The kingdom is pulled together under David. When Solomon comes on the scene, Solomon is responsible for building the temple and reinstating worship the way that it should be. And so Samuel, <coughs> excuse me, 
Samuel is sitting there writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looking back at what Israel is or has been in the past. And he's saying to us, the nation just did whatever they wanted to because there was no king. But I want you to rest and be assured of this fact that the king is coming. In other words, he's writing from the vantage point right before the monarchy saying, it's coming. The king is going to come. The king is going to reestablish the nation as God meant for it to be. And God is going to take care of things through the power of the king as he establishes himself in the land. What I want to show you today is just how bad it had become right there at the period of the end, when the end of the book of Judges comes comes about in the, the nation of Israel and just how depraved they were. I want to begin if we look as we look in Judges 17, because this will give you some idea of just spiritually where Israel was at that time. In Judges chapter 17, verses 5 through 6, it says, Now this man Michael had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods, and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, what they're saying, or what Samuel is trying to get you to see, is that in those days, there was no religious order to anything. Everybody had their own priest if they wanted it. They had household gods, idols. They had a priest to worship God of Israel. They just did whatever they wanted to do. There was no um, rationale behind it. There was no adherence to the law of Moses. There was nothing of that sort. It was just like every man for himself. And it didn't really matter what you believed or what you practiced. Because everybody did whatever they wanted to do. In other words, it was a spiritually cold climate in the nation of Israel. They were spiritually going down the tubes quickly. Now I want to jump ahead because I just want to paint a picture here, okay? This is the passage that I want to draw your attention to that is one of the most bizarre in all the scriptures. Let me begin in verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem in Judah, And she had been there for four months. Her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed her. Now let's look at what's happening here. This is a story just kind of random, just picked out of blue. But it is inspired. This is what God wants us to see. A Jew in the land of Israel takes a concubine or a mistress. This is mentioned often in the Old Testament. It's just a prostitute who serves as a mistress. And a lot of people in the Old Testament were practicing this. She leaves and goes back home. Her master comes after her because he wants her back. Now she's referred to in a little bit as her, or in this passage in verse 3 as her husband. That was not the case. That's just the way they referred to them at times. But she is property. She is his servant. He is her master. Now they stay there in her father's home for about a week and then they leave. 
And it says in verses 14 and 15, So they went on in the sunset as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. Now, it was customary whenever you come into a Jewish town, especially, that you would go into the city square and sit there with the anticipation or the hope that somebody would invite you into their home. This was the custom of um, hospitality. It was very important in the land of Israel. This is a, a Jewish town that they have gone into, Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin. And that's important to note because of what happens, okay? It says that an old man came and finally invited them into his home. So they go to his home, and they're relaxing there in his home, and down in verse 22. It says, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Where have you seen a similar situation like this in the Bible? Sodom, when Lot was in Sodom, and the angels come to Sodom, and he takes them into his home, and the men surround the city wanting him to bring the angel out so that they could have relations with him. Here it's happening again, same situation, different time. But here's what's so unique about it, is that it is a Jewish town. See, the Jews had the law. The law was very strict about things like this. They knew the law. But it's painting a picture for you to show you just how depraved they had become. Wicked men from within the city surround the house and demand that he be brought out. Bring us the man. We want the man. And there was no law and order. Everybody does whatever they want to and it's right in their own eyes. It didn't really matter. It just goes to show you, and this is the reason why I believe that Samuel is including this, is that the perversion was also rampant in the land of Israel at that time. Not only were they spiritually disoriented and cold, and everybody doing what they wanted to do, but there was a perversion <coughs> in the land of Israel at that time. And they have surrounded the house, and they are wanting this man to be brought out. Now look at what happens down in verses 23 and 24. The owner of the house went inside, well, I'm sorry, went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look here, my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now. And you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, do not, don't do such an outrageous thing. Now, think about what's happening. Because this is the same thing that Lot did back in the, in the Old Testament whenever he was in Sodom. I'm not going to give you this man... Because he's a guest in my home. You see, whenever you took somebody into your home, you were responsible for them. And this old man senses that he's responsible now for this gentleman. But what I want you to see is this. You know, Lot living in Sodom, I would have expected something perverse out of him. But here you are now, after the law has been given, after the time of Moses, living in the land of Israel now, and this man says to these perverts, that here, rather than letting you have the man, I will give you my young virgin daughter. 
And also, the gentleman that's here with me has a concubine, and you can have her too. You see, God had given very strict laws about young women, virgins. They were to be respected and treated properly, and any man who took advantage of them or molested them, the penalty was death. That was in the law. That was the way it was supposed to be. But again, it just goes to show you how perverse now people have become. And they're distorting morality. They have lost all perspective on what is right and wrong. And the law didn't really matter. Because you'll do whatever you have to do to preserve your life or to take care of yourself. So here's what happens. Verses 25 through 26 says this. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his... Now this is the guy that owns her... The man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. It's no wonder nobody wants to preach this. I mean, it's disgusting just to think of it. They turned this woman out to these men, this mob, who molest her all night long. She comes back at daylight to the house. She falls down and only has the strength, you'll see in a moment, to reach toward the door and she can't even get there. In fact, she lays there and dies. It's what happens. It's a horrible situation. But here's, here's what I want you to see. It's not just a lack of morality. It's not just a perversion. It is a lack of of value on human life. It didn't really matter to these guys. Now look at what our master does in verses 27 and 28. When our master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway to the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Now, just read between the lines how this is written. There she lay after having been ravaged all night. He steps over her and says, come on, we got to go. Total disregard for her life. He sees that she's dead. He throws her over the donkey and back home they head. And they finally get there. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but I just want to end this portion of it with these two verses. In verses 29 and 30, here's what happens when he gets home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts, and and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Now, you've got to envision this, okay? He gets back home. She's dead. And I guess the more he thought about it as he travels back home, the matter he got because he lost his concubine. And so he has this brainstorm. I will get all of the nation of Israel to rise up with me, and we'll go back and we'll get these guys and make them pay. This is what he's after. Cut her up into 12 pieces. That makes sense. And we'll send a piece to every part of the nation of Israel with a message explaining the situation. And when they see her body, or part of it, they will become as enraged as me, and then they will help me 
to get even with these guys. Bizarre. You're left sitting there wondering, God, why would you even include this in the Scripture? But Samuel included it for the express purpose of trying to get you and me to understand that without the king, this is what society was like. This is how bad it had become. This is how perverted they had become. So here's the rest of the story. Just let me tell it to you, okay? All of the nation of Israel becomes enraged. They, they are, they're incited to revenge. And so they send a, send a delegation to the tribe of Benjamin there in, in the town of Gibeah and say, give us the men that did this horrible thing that we might bring justice. Gibeah refuses. They become a sanctuary city all of a sudden. And we're not going to send them out. We're going to protect them. No matter what they did, as horrible as it may be, they're part of our citizenship and we're going to protect them. So as the story goes, here's what happened. All of the rest of Israel raises an army. They attack Gibeah. They fight back and forth. Men die on each side. But ultimately, the tribe of Benjamin is almost annihilated. Almost. As a matter of fact, toward the end of the book, you read that the rest of Israel begins to see that they've just about destroyed Benjamin, the tribe. And in an effort to build the tribe back up, they start supplying own, their own virgin daughters to the men of, of, of the town of Gibeah because they have just about wiped out all of their men, women, and children in order that the tribe of Benjamin would not be annihilated. Now that's how the story goes. And it ends with this verse or in chapter 21, verse 25 of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's how it ends. And you kind of read between the lines and you kind of get the idea that old Samuel is writing this to say, this is the history of the nation for the last 400 years. And here's how bad they had gotten. Here's how perverted they were, how godless they were. It goes, it's hard to describe. This is who they were. And he says, but, but relax. If you're reading this, don't get, don't get angry or impatient or afraid. Because the king is coming. And the king's on his way. I'm going to anoint him. It was Samuel that anointed David. And this is where everything turns around because it was the king that brought law and order. It was the king that brought religious life back to Israel in respect for the law of God. Now let's move from the story to the application. Okay, Let's move from what was to what is. Because as you look around in this world today, and especially our country, I believe we're living in what could be compared to the time of the judges. You see, everybody does what is right in their own eyes. It doesn't matter what the law is. It doesn't matter what is right and wrong. It doesn't matter what God says. It's like a concerted effort. All of a sudden, it seems like, in this world, to do away with everything that is religious, everything that God has said, everything that God does, everything that is religious, or especially Christian. Isn't it interesting how the world will accept every other religion except Christianity? And I guess the only reason for that is because Christianity is the only one that says there's only one way. But here we are living in the period of the judges. 
Let's look and see what I mean by that and how I compare these. Let's talk about being spiritually cold and dead. What is happening in this world today that would lead us to believe that we are in a time when we are spiritually cold and dead? I've got some uh, newspaper headlines here. Not newspaper, but they came over online and, and so forth, some news articles. Let's put up the first one. If you can't read it, it says, Sri Lanka bombings, part of ugly anti-Christian pattern around the globe. You've all heard what's going on overseas. You know the bombings that took place. You know the people that died. This is just the scratch on the tip of the iceberg. Look again at the second one. It says, Egyptian Christians killed returning from baptism. This was in November of 2018. Christians in Egypt were killed just for being Christian as they returned from a baptismal service. Look at the next one. From April of 2019, genocide in Nigeria. 6,000 Christians are slaughtered. That was just last month. There is a concerted effort in the world to get rid of Christianity. Religion in general, but especially, especially Christianity. Now, this has always been around. I mean, it's nothing new. But for it to escalate at this period in history, that's important. Look at the next one. It says Hamas training children for terror. That was November of 2018. Now again, that's nothing new either. But yet it's escalating. It's picking up again. Look at the next one. Anti-Israel voices in Congress. You recognize the faces. They're on the news all the time. These are congressmen, women that are all of a sudden now against the nation of Israel. The voices are being lifted up in Congress against Israel, and against Christianity, I might add. And guys, this is not one party over another politically. This is across the lines here because both sides of the political aisle are guilty. But again, it just goes to show the conditions of the world in which we live and the way people think. Because now the leaders of our nation are turning against Israel, our ally, and against us as Christians. Look at the next one. It says that Sweden is close to banning religion. That was from January 2019. That Sweden is close to just saying no more religion because it seems like, in their minds at least, religion is the problem. So just get rid of it. This next one is from October of 2018. It says Quebec administration bans crosses worn by employees. Now this is interesting. You can go into Canada and wear your, whatever they call it, on their heads, as the Muslims do, and that's okay. But you let a Christian wear a cross on their neck, and they're seeking to ban it now. Why? Because there's a concerted effort against religion, but especially Christianity. Look at this next one. From August of 2018, Satanic Temple unveils a statue at the Arkansas Capitol. When in the world did we ever think we'd get to this point? How? You know, I sit back and I look at this and I think to myself, there are things going on in the world right now that I never thought I'd see. I never thought I'd be in a time in history where right seemed to be wrong and wrong seemed to be right and everything seemed to be turned upside down. 
I listen to political leaders and, and, and people talk on the TV and the things they say that are coming out of their mouth. It's almost as if, let's see if we can be as weird or more weird than the, next, the last one was and come up with something as outrageous so that people will look at us. It's hard to believe, but yet it's true. There's a total disregard for life as well. Human trafficking. Have you ever in your life been afraid now for your own daughters to go out in public for fear of being kidnapped and trafficked as a concubine somewhere in the Middle East? It's a real fear we never thought that we would face, but we're facing it. A total disregard for human life. Look at this next uh, headline. It says, Judge rules Iowa abortion law as unconstitutional. Now, here's the law. It's in the fine print. You can't see it. But it says, The law would ban most abortions as soon as a heartbeat is detected. And that was the law. But the judge now says, Oh, no, no, we can't do that. That's unconstitutional. And so they are moving then to strike down that law. So even after a heartbeat is detected, the child can still be aborted. Look at this last one. This one will really get you. North Carolina governor may veto a bill protecting babies who survive abortions. This was from April of this year. I mean, just recently. That the North Carolina governor is basically saying that if a baby is survives an abortion attempt and is living, that the doctor can then kill it. Where did you ever think we'd be at this point in time? It makes no sense. And all I can do is sit back and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? Because let me tell you, and I really believe this, you know, we're a couple of elections away from this mess taking over like a cancer. I don't know what's going to happen after that. I find myself sometimes losing hope. I find myself sometimes getting worried. I find myself wishing that we're back in the good old days, you know. Ozzie and Harriet, <laughs> all of that, you know, this, just the innocence of when we grew up. But we're not. We're in a world right now where life doesn't matter. There's a total disregard for the law. This whole perversion over gender neutrality. That a person can just declare whatever gender they want to be. I heard a joke this past week. It said that President Trump ought to just say, I'm a now a woman. I declare myself to be a woman, and then he would be the first female president. You know, you got to laugh just not to cry. A total disregard for the law, their courts, oh my gosh. It seems like the most ridiculous decision that could be made, that's what they'll do. Total disregard for the Constitution. None of that matters. Guys, we're, we're living judges now. We're living it. This nation is crumbling right before our eyes. And yeah, lose hope? You bet. Get worried? Yeah. Wondering what tomorrow is going to be like, what our children and grandchildren, what kind of world are they going to grow up in? And just like Samuel is telling the Jewish people, look, it may be bad. This is the worst it's ever been in the nation of Israel, but just relax and be calm and have patience because the king is coming. I'm telling you, listen, I don't worry because the king is coming. You understand? And this is the teaching of Scripture to you and me. 
that yeah, we live in a time of the judges. We live in a time where everybody does what's right in their own eyes and nothing makes sense to us. But I know what's coming and so do you. Our king is coming and when the king comes, it's all set in order again. Just like in the Old Testament. Just like Samuel told the people living in Israel on that day. Now with that in mind, that the king is coming, and we know that from Scripture, the Bible tells us that someday he's coming back for us. And, I, and let me just say this, okay? I don't know when that is, and neither do you. I believe with all my heart that it's going to get way worse before it gets better. And even though the Bible teaches that we don't go through the period of the tribulation, I believe that we go through tribulation. I believe things are going to get a whole lot worse before that terrible period predicted in the Bible ever gets here. Guys, it wouldn't take much to get really, really bad. I think that we're going to lose our freedoms to a certain degree. I think the economy is going to get way worse. I think that it's going to be harder to survive in this world. I really do. Am I worried about my children and what they're going to grow up in, my grandchildren? Yeah, everybody should be. But we still hang on to the hope because we know what's coming, you see. And we know that at some point in time, God straightens it all out again. Now with that in mind, in the moments we have remaining, let me just share with you how we ought to then live in response to that. With that in mind, and the reality of that, and the truth of that, then the question is this, okay, so what do I do? What do I do living here in the period of judges in the United States? What do I do? Two things. Here's the first one. You stand strong in the hope that you have. You stand strong in the hope that you have. Now let me explain what I mean by hope. It's one of those biblical words. It is not talking about wishing. Okay? Hope means you are absolutely convinced and you're looking forward to it. Hope is something you always look forward to with the anticipation that it's going to happen. And that's how the Bible depicts it. You and I stand here today on the brink of what could be a disaster in this world and in our nation. And we don't know what's going to happen. But you and I have hope. We have something to look forward to. And we have to rest in that. And we have to be assured. Let me share with you three quick verses. Okay? Just listen. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus is preaching and he's teaching. And here's what he says in verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, I've already beaten the world. He said, and the time is coming when everything's going to be taken care of. But let me tell you what it's going to be like before that. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have a period of like it was in the judges. You're going to go through that. And it's going to get bad. But I'm telling you that ahead of time so that you can have peace. That when it happens, you can rest. You can have peace in the middle of it. Well, how, God, can I have peace in the middle of it? Well, there's two little words in that verse that I want you to look at. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you can have peace. Now think about that, because every one of us who has put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we've talked about this numerous times, 
The Bible says that we are placed in Christ. We were placed or immersed into Him. We are in Him and He is in us. And we are in a unique situation. That because of the hope that we have, we know what's coming. And because of that, we have peace in the middle of all the mess. For those of you that have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have that peace. You look at the world, you see what's happening, the world crumbling around us and everything going to hell in the handbasket, and you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? You don't have peace. And you won't without Him. Because peace is found in Christ. That's the only way. The world cannot give it to you. Look at this next verse. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Now look at this. He says, with your minds alert and fully sober. In other words, you've thought this through. You know what the Bible says, and you're, you're choosing to believe that. He says, with that happening, you set your hope on the grace that He's going to bring to you when He comes. In other words, you're going to be in a world of hurt until then. It's going to get bad. But God in His grace is going to come. The King's going to get you. The King's coming to set things straight. And that's what you need to set your hope on. No politician can bail you out. They can just prolong the inevitable. My hope is not in President Trump or anybody else. My prayers are with him and God love him. But my hope is in Jesus Christ in what's coming. Look at this verse in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now look at what it's saying. My hope in what is coming and what is the truth of Scripture is an anchor for my soul. He's saying, why are you worried? Why are you afraid? It's going to get bad. I'm telling you that ahead of time. But relax. Because the hope that you have is an anchor to your soul. Firm and secure. I love those words. Firm and secure. Here's the second thing. The first one was standing strong in the hope that you have. Here's the second thing that you need to do, okay? This is it. Don't waste time. Don't waste time. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5 says this. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. You and I don't have a lot of time left. The way we respond to the unbelieving world, the way we reach out to them, the way we assist them, the way we love them, the way that we try to witness to them. He said, don't waste time. Some of you have loved ones that are lost. What are you waiting for? Don't waste time. You and I need to be worshiping and loving God and fellowshipping together and being a part of the church in praying together, and studying the Scriptures together. We need to be voting in all of the elections we can because that's our responsibility. And let me just say this, anybody that votes for a politician that is pro-abortion, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You don't do it. I don't care who they are. You don't do it. Some of us just waste our lives away, waiting for the end to come. And God says don't do it. Listen to this verse. 
It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. It's similar to the one I just read. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Did you get that? You ought to be making the most of every opportunity and not wasting time because the days are bad. It's bad, guys. Why are you wasting time? Look, why aren't we gathering together more to pray for the nation? To pray for the politicians that are trying to turn things around? Why are we not sharing our faith more? Why do we not worship more together? Why are we lazy? Guys, we've got to get serious about this. Time is short. The days are evil. We need to be standing up for what is true and not being afraid of what people think or will do to us. It's going to get bad. We're telling you that now. God has told us it's going to get bad. But you stand up. You don't waste time. And you don't let anybody steal your hope. Ever. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and His righteousness. Jesus' blood and righteousness. I think so. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ and you have no hope and you are fearful and worried, then let me explain something to you very quickly. The Bible says that you and I are sinners. We're sinners. That's not a judgment. It's just a statement of fact. This is what God says. And that because you're a sinner, you can never enter into heaven. But that God loved you so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross to pay for your sin. He paid the debt. He paid the penalty. Everything that God would extract from you as a sinner, He extracted from Jesus Christ when He died on the cross. Everything that He would hurl at you as a sinner, He hurled at Jesus. He took your place. He's your Savior, your substitute. Now here's the question. Are you going to put your faith in what He did and be saved and become a child of God? Or are you going to continue to live the way you are, ignoring everything in life, doing what is right in your own eyes, and facing an uncertain world and a very certain eternity? Don't do it. The Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do that now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. And this may be your opportunity to come to Christ today. Right there where you sit, I'm not having people come forward or do something like that. It's not my desire to make a spectacle of you. But if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Christ, then now's the time to do it. Just bow your head before God and pray to God and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe what the Bible says. I'm a sinner. But I believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus died for me. And I'm accepting that. I believe it. And I'm trusting you to save me. Right here and now, I'm trusting you to save me. The Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You're saved by your faith, not your ability to be good. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here this morning, Father, I pray for each one of us that as we face this future that is coming, this world that we will be forced to live in,
May we never lose hope. Never. Because we know that the King is coming. And Father, our hope is built on that because you're going to set things right. And Father, I pray for each one of us that we would never be caught being lazy. But Father, we would get to work. We would be busy. Father, help us to be the people that you want us to be, especially, especially at this point in history. Father, may we love you the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.